You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. It's the Bedroom Beethoven Podcast. Whoa, you just blew my mind because nobody talks about that shit. <laughs> Thank you for this. Like, I was looking forward to this chat, man. I love your interviews. I thank you for what you're doing. Like, it's excellent. And um, people can continue to learn the stories of, the, of these uh, bedroom Beethoven's. Um, how did you find out about this? Are you? Oh, my God. Having something like this to shed light on, on, on us is amazing. Like, we really need this documentation. So people like you are definitely needed. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Let's travel from Zimbabwe all the way to the DMV area. This week... My guest is. So my name is Dumi Wright, coming out of a crew called Zimbabwe Legit, which was actually one of the first hip-hop crews coming out of Africa. Um, have worked with a lot of notables, Jungle Brothers, uh, Prince Poe, uh, Dead Prez, uh, Breeze Everflowing, Sea Ray's Walls, Vast Air, and Chub Rock. Wondering why you did this to me You said it's for the best but I disagree So many good times in history But now you're gone girl like a mystery I'm out here working, going berserking You're full of bombing, pictures lurking Facebook stalking and public gawking Ask you to stay by the crystal for your walking Doomy is a standard bearer for global hip-hop Who is not only talented but very self-aware Saying that you should tell your story about who you are And what you do through hip-hop The first inclination with a lot of them is to recycle Stuff they've heard on the radio or seen on TV. No, because you're not a millionaire. You're not rolling in a fancy car. So who are you really? Drop the facade and talk about who you are. Have fun and gain confidence. We discussed the days in Zimbabwe, traveling to the U.S., and what a storied and long career looks like up through 2020. With such a solid hip-hop background and credentials, Do Me Right has been invited to perform at venues including the Kennedy Center, Smithsonian, Whitney Museum, and more. But before I get into it, this episode is supported by Substantial Art and Music, LLC, which is an organization focused on providing consulting services to the art and music community. Visit them at subartandmusic.com. And also, J57 and the whole 5-7 collective, J-Mo Gang announces Walking with Lions LP featuring DJ Premier Slug and more, and it arrives in about a week, April 10th. It's available to pre-order now via Fat Beats. With that said, BedroomBeethoven.com is another website you can go to. My website. Poke around. Buy a shirt. Sign up for the Patreon at Bedroom Beethoven's. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow me on Spotify. Basically, just support the show. Whether it's donating a buck a month to show your love or just, you know, leave a heart, a like on Instagram. Or subscribe. Thank you all. We're over the hump. Episode 61. Let's keep the momentum going. Do me right. Bedroom Beethoven's. Let's get it. Mission accomplished. 
first and foremost, as we uh, peel back the layers and go through your story, I want to say RIP to your brother, the master DJ. He kind of got you into this culture. Respect due, and I appreciate that. So RIP, my brother Munja. Munja is a Ndebele word, which means power, and he definitely was a powerful source and inspiration. Um, he passed away, you know, some years back, but he's kind of the guy who brought me and brought us, um, referring to my other my other brother, um, into the hip hop scene and the music scene. Um, since he was a DJ and had you know collections of vinyl records and got us listening and interested in it and encouraged our progress and development. Yeah. Now, if I say a sentence like. Uh, Doomy got inspired by hip hop, started writing rhymes and learning how to produce, came over to the States and signed a deal. It makes it sound easy. But in the late 80s, early 90s, <laughs> I mean, hip hop's fairly new. You can't just fly to American Idol and audition in front of Jennifer Lopez. You had a hustle. You had a right. hustle. So how did those chain of events come together? Yeah, like you said, a super complicated process because when you think about just the correspondence, right, like getting in touch with someone in the U.S. that's in the music business, it was all through letters, you know, snail mail, you know, you're writing a letter, you know. I forget 60 cents of worth of postage and you mail it and you wait a couple weeks, right? You don't know if the person got it or not until you get another letter back from them in a couple weeks saying, Hey, received your letter. Really excited. So we actually would get copies of the source magazine occasionally. Um, and that's when the source, you know, uh, late 80, like 89, I think this was around. Um, so it was still, you know, fledgling publication in black and white mostly. And there was a column called Gangster Limping with Funk Incline. And he always at the end of his column say, yo, all my peoples all over the world that are doing hip hop and making music, you know, let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. And so we wrote back to him and said, yo, not only are we listening and are really inspired by what's happening in hip hop and a lot of the Afrocentric rhymes and groups that were coming out at the time, we're also doing it. And he wrote back, you know, some weeks later and was like, oh, word, y'all should let me hear something. And so we'd got some rough demos that we had cut in the studio that we mailed on cassette to him. And, you know, some weeks later he responded and was like, yo, the stuff sounds really dope. If you're ever in the U.S., look me up and maybe something can happen. You know, so at that point, it's just kind of a thought and an idea. And who would have known that it would have actually been able to manifest and unfold into you know, Zimbabwe legit dropping a record on Hollywood Basic Records in 1992, some years subsequent to that, working with DJ Shadow and the Black Sheep on production on that first EP. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the Hollywood Basic, the label. It was Hollywood's short-lived hip-hop subsidiary, like movie-making Hollywood. And it accidentally... Just had these iconic moments, but it was some weird ones as well. They put they put a hip hop remix of Queen tracks. They even yep. had Ice Cube on it. They had uh, uh, a Lifers group, which was a hip hop group. Yeah, com- composed of- out of Rahway Prison of real Lifers. Yeah, um, great. And they recorded it in Rahway Prison. Uh, don't know if that don't know if that was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> And, and you know what's cool? If you're a big fan of Stones Throw, um, you know MF Doom, Madlib, etc. Peanut Butter Wolf and Charisma were on that label. But when Charisma got murdered, all of their music was trashed and he got frustrated. So Peanut Butter Wolf left and created Stone's Throw. So the ripple effect uh, that the oddities of that label is responsible for is pretty insane. Yeah. And I mean, they had Organized Confusion was the first group that Funk and Klein signed. 
and we all know, you know, the, the history there um, onto the present. And actually, when we first signed with them and we went on tour for the first time to Japan, uh, we went with Organized. So we flew on the plane from New York to Japan on that long flight, you know, hanging with Prince Poe and Pharaoh March, you know, talking, building and really learning because we were new to the game at that point and real new to the industry. And myself had just recently come back to the U.S. as well. So it was crazy experience, crazy times. I heard Organized Confusion, like everyone else lost their music. And the recordings except for them that could be it was like a crazy situation because so hollywood basic like you said subsidiary of the walt disney company you know go figure like organized has a a, a classic line where i think prince paul says because i'm down i'm tricky in a joust because i'm down with mickey mouse <laughs> um but there was a lot of frustrations with the label you know how industry um things happen and I think there was also a lot of push from the parent company to be like, we need to make money. We need, you know, I remember the label folks telling us that they're, they're pushing them to find the next crisscross. Like they wanted like, you know, this mega pop hit, right? And they had a whole bunch of crazy, unique, unorthodox, dope groups and the you know main label was pushing. So anyway, when the label folded, unfortunately the founder passed away. He'd been battling um, like spinal issues and a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so that's why he was called gangster limping. He was in a wheelchair a lot of the times of walking with a cane. But once his health had started to decline and, you know, other forces came into play and the label was basically, you know, um, on its last legs, a lot of the stuff musically, like we couldn't get calls back. People weren't getting stuff promoted. People weren't getting access to the record. People were like, yo, we want to play it. How can we get it? So it's just a whole lot of stuff happening in and around that, when it eventually closed its doors, it's like I'd call and people would be like, who? Who's this? Who do you want to speak to? Oh, yeah, th- that label's not here anymore. So it was kind of like, you know, gone, gone in a flash. That's um, how you found out? I mean, we were just, and again, oh, you got to realize, too, you know, we're talking, you know, early 90s to the mid 90s. And so it's not like now where it's like, oh, let me go on the website and let me email this guy. And, you know, it's like, and so I'm calling people from college because I was in college at the time calling Collect. And I remember it was funny because uh, Dave had been like, yeah, 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 I know you're a college student. Just call me Collect. Um, and I called and they're like, we don't accept Collect calls. Who's this call? <laughs> Which was weird at the time, but that was kind of the, the beginnings of the end. Wow. Are you familiar with a zine called The Bomb? The Bomb, yes. I'm familiar with them. Um, I think we might have done something uh, with them, either a write-up or review or something back in those days. Yeah, all the names that we've dropped, it can't be a coincidence because for people that don't know, The Bomb was a was a hip-hop zine in 1992. It was kind of Xerox style. It included work by Charisma and Peanut Butter Wolf. DJ Shadow wrote for it. Who helped produce one of your first records? And of course, Funkenklein was working there. And that zine took a shot at the source, which caused a source editor to call up the zine, and they called it a cobbled, stapled together piece of crap. <laughs> I hadn't heard that story, but yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Blazing reflections of Yeah, it's funny because, you know, Dave Klein started it all and the Disney-led Hollywood records after the source. So if we look at the butterfly effect of it all, if you would have graduated high school like a year later, you probably would have missed your shot. You might have wrote to the source, but a different editor would have read 
the letter or thrown it in the trash. So, I mean, they say opportunity is just kind of what? Luck and being in the right place and all that. So. Yeah, opportunity and preparation. And it was funny because when he we started corresponding with him, he was like, oh, yeah, I'll send you some promos. And, you know, he sent us some Jungle Brothers shirts and, you know, some 12 inches. And, like, I think the Queen Latifah Ladies First was one of them and Straight Out of the Jungle and some other records. And he was working at Red Alert Productions in New York City. And so when we met with him, we went to 29th Street, you know, caught the bus. We were upstate New York to Port Authority, you know, throwing our dashikis and our beads and strolled down, you know, 8th Avenue over to uh, 29th Street to Red Alert Productions and sat down with him to have our first meeting and talk about what would be or what would end up being Zimbabwe Legit. Yeah, that's dope. So, you, I mean, we have yourself. We have your brother, and now we have your cousin Pep. So everyone's got the rap bug. And it's actually funny. So if we like rewind a couple years, when we were in Zimbabwe, my brother and my cousin Pep were the cats on the forefront of the scene rapping and you know getting on the radio and doing stuff. I had started on the dance tip, so I had done like dance contests and stuff and um, ended up master force yeah yeah oh so you did your you did a lot of research on this exactly <laughs> so we're in a crew called master force and so we'd have battles downtown in the main street of the city center in harare the capital city of zimbabwe and we'd battle other crews um you know on saturday afternoons and then we we saw movies like beat street and breakdance which were huge inspirations and those guys, like my brother and Pep, were really at the forefront in rapping. I was a, a big writer at the time, but I was a lot younger, too. So a lot of times they'd go to clubs or go to spots to do stuff, and I'd be too young to get in. Um, you'd have to be 16, and I wouldn't be old enough or stuff like that. But um, it was definitely a burgeoning hip-hop scene and a vibrant hip-hop scene that we were you know, trying to gain access to and do our thing way over in the motherland. Well, so, I mean, these are this is back in the days of, like, DJ Mixmaster Ice with Shantae's Marley Marl, the Ro- the Roxanne saga, the Bridge Wars. Yep, definitely. You know what's crazy? She retired from rap and she's now a clinical psychologist. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how, how things go. Yo, EMD. Yeah, what's up, man? They go that girl they call Roxanne. She's all stuck up. Why you say that? Cause you wouldn't give a guy like me no rap. Now she was walking down the street, so I said, hello, I'm Kanko from your TFO. And she was so, I said, so, baby, don't you know I can sing rap dancing just one show? Cause I'm Kanko. But yeah, I remember, so like the Roxanne Wars, like we'd always get our information secondhand. And so somebody would have a tape. Yo, this is the real rock side. Ice. Or like, well, who's the other rock fan? And we're trying to unpack the whole story and figure it out. But a lot of the ways we got access to the music and understood what was happening and what the latest was was, you know, friends overseas, cousins, or a brother or sister, you know, would record a mix show and mail you the cassette. And then those cassettes would spread far and wide, right? Because it's like, oh, my cousin just got this new new cassette. Let me go over to his house and let me dub it. You know, and somebody would get a dub of a dub or you'd trade off um, records and mix shows. Um, so we heard like DJ Red Alert going berserk on Kiss FM, you know, through cassettes, not 
lots of shows, but an occasional show. We heard Westwood, Fresh Start to the Week from the UK, from people who had connections over there. So we'd hear different artists and, you know, kind of get a, a window and insight into what was happening in hip hop. Well, so when you came over for, like, I guess your record deal or your opportunity, you're simultaneously going to college as well, right? Yep. Where did you yep. go and what did you study? Um, so I went to Virginia Tech and I was a liberal arts. So I studied uh, English communications and technology education. And shout out to WVT College Radio. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so while I was at Tech, obviously being a music man, worked at the radio station, worked my way up to urban music director, um, started DJing on AM, which is like awful. Like nobody listened, right? But that's where you had to cut your teeth for at least a semester. But it was great because you'd have piles and piles of promo records from all these labels. So sometimes it would just be, you know, listening through stuff and, you know, all these white labels and all these releases and, you know, reading up and learning about what was going on and getting records from all over the country, too. Well, I mean, so you're you're in the U.S. I mean, you're kind of entrenched in, in college culture and and uh, networking. But in, in the late 80s, like what did music mean to people in Zimbabwe? Because I imagine if you catch wind of grandmaster flash it's like a peek into a different world because everyone says america the beautiful but if you know nothing of the u.s and you hear grandmaster flash talking about broken glass everywhere hip-hop starts to paint a different kind of picture as the american cliches will lead you to believe oh yeah now that's a great point because that kind of get hip-hop basically kind of gave us a window into like the subculture and counterculture and things that were really happening you know it's that live report from the from the Bronx or from wherever um, the MC was was speaking from or speaking about, and so you know we heard songs like the Sugar Hill Gang and everything like that. But then you hear things like Public Enemy, and you're starting to hear you know about like race relations in America, and you hear things you know like you know the Grandmaster Flash record. And then as time went on, I remember when Ice T Colors dropped, and like we had no idea like about gang culture and gang warfare. And so it was really like, you know, moving and striking and kind of inspiring to be like, oh, oh, so that's what's going on over there. Yeah, I'd have never, you know, things here happen, but totally different, you know, totally different aspect, you know, kind of the territories and all of that. And then I remember the first time we heard straight out of Compton and like it was mystifying because it was, you know, a lot of rap at that point, at least the rap we were listening to was more on the progressive and positive and uplifting tape. And then when NWA came out, it was like, whoa, you know, but at the same time, they were talking about real life stories and trials and tribulations that people go through in urban areas in the city and in the hood. And you're like, wow, like, you know, this is real. Like, this is not, you know, everything is gravy and, you know, wave the flag and everybody's happy and, you know, it's all copacetic. It's like, there's real stuff happening. People are having real challenges. And I think rap is probably the only vehicle that could communicate that to us at that distance, right? The news stories aren't necessarily going to talk about gang violence in LA, right? Because they're talking about local news or regional news. Um, but through hip hop, we were like getting insights from all over the US um, and kind of hearing about stuff, you know, without any other access. Again, you know, bef before the prevalence of the internet and the World Wide Web and YouTube. But it's arguable that the ghetto vernacular practiced by many African-American rappers has become so atrophied in its relentless repetition 
of a severely limited range of curse words that any claims for resistance has long passed their use-by date. So as you've matured, you realize this as well, because like curse words can be a distraction from the message. They're filler words. Yeah, it's like a crutch, right? It's a lot of times when you're doing like a workshop or doing exercises and working with like younger, younger kids or whatever, high school kids, they'll go to that as a go-to one because it's easy and they've heard it a million times. So it's easy to pull it out, especially if you're trying to improv. But it's also... It's an easy way out, right? If I don't have a point to make, I can just curse, right? For shock value or just to say something, you know, just to bridge the gap to the next thing that I'm going to say. And the thing that I guess I realized too, it's like the power you have with the words just from the experience that I had and knowing that that continues, right? People all over the world, especially now, are checking out what people are saying and it's influencing them in one way or another. And so it's not like a burden, but it's it's something that just should be taken with weight, right? It's not just like you can't just take this thing lightly because it's so powerful, right? It's like you've been granted these powers and you can use them for good and you can use them for evil or, you know, whatever. But um, it's it's kind of important to do something with what you've got. My, one of my favorite songs is uh, or phrases is from the far side. I got to kick something that means something, something that means something, something that means something, just because, like, it's so important. It's, this ain't no time when the usual is suitable, to quote my man most deaf. For sure. I, I guess it depends on, I guess, who was saying that, because, you know, with, you know, when revolutionary music like maybe Cop Killer came out, people were bulldozing the CDs and white politicians were up in arms. When we When we make revolutionary music, hip-hop's marginality is as official as routinized as its overblown defiance, yet it is still represented as an outlaw form, especially back in the 90s like we talked about. If you're making revolutionary music, because you only have three to four minutes to do a song, half of which is a chorus, your message can become oversimplified or more usually ignored by its academic celebrants. So when you make music with a message, how do you approach it to where it's celebrated by the far side, but ostracized by someone like Ice Teen NWA. I mean, who do you have in mind when you're making this music? So a lot of what I've, I think I've learned, like I think when I started, like when we started out, you know, we had a message and we were talking about the African perspective and we kind of expected, you know, very naively that, oh, everyone's going to be, you know, hey, we're talking about conscious stuff and not realizing that there's some people who either will be threatened by it or be opposed to it for one reason or another. I think as I've matured, I kind of realized, one, not to come out and be like, you're wrong, you know, this is how it should be. And so I'm kind of more strategic, I think, and subtle, you know what I mean? Nobody wants you in their face trying to tell them, this is what you should do, right? I don't think that that's the most effective form of communication. But I think you also have to relate to people where they are, and make a message that's relatable and also say, speak from your own personal experience, right? Because if you're telling somebody, oh, this is what I went through, this is how I felt, and this is how I dealt with it, and this was the outcome, this is what I see happening, this is how I want my family to be, this is how I see youth responding to what I do in your music, you know, people will relate to it that are in that situation. And people that can't relate won't necessarily be, you know, you know, offended by it or necessarily because you're not calling them out, so to speak. You're just saying, hey, this is how it is for me. And I always think like, you know, when people are rapping about whatever subject, you know, glorifying materialism or whatever, and that's their prerogative to do, 
they're not shy about it, right? But when people are, you know, so-called conscious, a lot of times it's like, well, I don't want to be labeled conscious because I don't want people. And it's like, well, the cats that are rapping about everything else are proud, you know what I mean? They're standing on it. They're going to die on that hill. And so it's like, if this is the hill that I'm going to die on, I'm going to be proud to say what I'm saying because I mean it and it's real to me and the people around me and the people that I want to influence. And, you know, when I look at my kids and see, you know, how they respond to music and what they listen to, like, I want to make sure that the legacy that I'm putting forth and what I'm saying is something that I can be proud of. And I don't want to be like, oh, man, why did I why did I do that? Like, yo, I sold my soul. I mean, authenticity is great, but let's say you release a song with Justin Bieber and Drake. Now you're following trends. Is there any way to do a song with Post Malone without compromising who you are as an artist? Like, can you have your cake and eat it too? Or is, or that's going to start affecting who you are as an artist and it's just not worth it? I'll, I'll think about it in the way of, I remember in the 90s where people were like, yo, real hip hop and you know, Outkast came out and people were trying to, you know, at least around where I was, be like, yo, that's not the real hip hop they're doing. And it's like, no, but they're telling a story from their perspective. Like, like, like uh, Andre said, the South got something to say. And so if you would have done a collab with them, and I think, you know, down years later, you know, obviously Raekwon rocked with with Outkast and that kind of stuff. But a lot of times purists want you to just stick to what you're you know, stick to your knitting, stick to what you're doing and don't do anything with other folks. But I find that collaboration uh, productive a lot of times. And I think a lot of times it's done from a marketing standpoint. Oh, he's got a big fan base, you know, let's hop on and, and try to get his fans. But I think when it's not authentic, what you do a lot of times is alienate your core fans. And so maybe the single hits, maybe it doesn't. Um, many instances where like my favorite artist has put out a song and it's like, what? Like, oh, that dance joint, that's not you at all. And hopefully you can recover from it. Might be like, oh, why is he rocking with him? Like, that's like, you know, and so it's like a lose-lose situation where as opposed to the, the plan was you thought you were going to win both audiences and you might lose them all. I mean, the, the greatest compliment I can give you is how you've navigated, you know, decades of staying relevant. Because when I think of Brand Nubian, King Sun, Public Enemy, I mean, I hate to say this, but it seems like Afrocentric rap was a trend because I'm not seeing that kind of message anymore. And I think a lot of what it is, and um, like I'll have this debate with folks where they'll be like, oh, the music is out there. You just have to dig and find it. But I mean, if you have kids or you're around youth, you know that they're generally consuming what's out in the mass media, right? I mean, they're not necessarily going on YouTube to dig and be like, what's the latest from? They may not know the artists. They may not have heard of them. And the other stuff is right there. They can hear it. Their friends are listening to it. And so it's sad when, you know, you used to hear Public Enemy blasting on, you know, mainstream radio. You'd hear Tribe Called Quest three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm visiting my sister in Cincinnati and they're playing Check the Rhyme, you know, mid-afternoon on the, on the, on the mix shows or whatever on the radio. Uh, whereas now stuff that I think talks about consciousness, talks about progressive causes, you know, kind of gets relegated to the side in favor of the more commercial stuff. And so I think a lot of these artists are still rocking and they just get their their money and their shine touring. A lot of overseas audiences, unfortunately, are more receptive than U.S. audiences to a lot of these artists, a lot of the classic artists, a lot of golden age artists, you know, make a killing overseas and pack shows and 
you know, at home, it's like that old adage, a prophet's not accepted in their hometown. It's like at home, people are, you know, checking for the latest, you know, Drake joint or whatever. It's unfortunate, but um, I guess to in order to keep doing it, I think I kind of tend to also think outside the box in terms of where I perform, the things that I do, staying active, you know, getting involved in like cultural exchange, you know, working with schools. What, what was that? Uh, prophets uh, aren't well received in their hometown. What was that quote? Prophet is never, you know, accepted in his hometown, meaning a lot that's of deep, times man. And it's you, so you true. go elsewhere and people are celebrating you, right? I remember Asher Wu talking about him going overseas to do a show and having like hundreds of people literally before the show even started gathering in the parking lot and him thinking like, yo, you know, what's the deal? Like, this is great. It would be great if that was the same, you know, reception, you know, around the way. You know, you know who else had that, uh, that experience? Lamont Dozier. Okay. He had a really interesting perspective since he has, you know, decades of experience as well as producing a Motown. He would return to his old neighborhood and see his old buddies. Like you go down there with one thing in mind, thinking your old friends are going to feel good about it and be happy for you. But it's just the opposite. They thought that he was down there slumming or trying to make himself look better than them. But that wasn't (laughs) it. You know, the point was he wanted to go there and give them some get up and go like, hey, man, I did this and you can too. But they took it. Like he was trying to make them look bad, and it really hurt him. So, uh, you know, now now that your your friends have graduated in, in high school, who may not have had a dollar and a dream, and sent a letter to a record executive they saw in a Source magazine and got a record deal, do you get a lot of hate from people who were either jealous or thought maybe you were abandoning them for the DMV area? The thing that's funny about that, and like you know, obviously living over here, and you know, only traveling back. Not as frequently as I'd have liked to, but getting back early on, I wondered, like, you know, what's the reaction? How do people feel? Are they like, yo, those are those cats are representing us? I mean, we put a country on our back, like through the name, like Zimbabwe, legit. Like, you can't miss that we're repping for the for the country. And um, it's been interesting because I'll run into people who'll be like, yo, when that song "Doing Damage" came out. It was so inspiring because you guys were rapping in English and in Debele and, you know, that was new and fresh. And it gave me like, you know, a vision of what I could do. And I'm actually collaborating with a young cat now and he um, in Zimbabwe. And he's like, yo, everything that you do, just actually being able to build with you now after having seen you kind of set the path, you know, and, and blaze a trail was inspiring. And so when I hear that, you know what I mean? There's nothing better, no better feeling than knowing that what we did back then impacted folks. People are always like, yeah, we weren't sure. Yo, are they really from Zimbabwe? Or were they just saying that? And then we read the history and we realized that you guys really were. And, you know, um, so they kind of view it as like we were ambassadors of, you know, the movement of African hip hop movement, which has, you know, obviously blossomed and grown, you know, a million fold since then. But getting that feedback is, is kind of, you know, what it's all about for me. I mean, of course, in present day, everyone understands the grand vision of Zimbabwe legit was to bring your cultural understanding and influence into the music. But maybe people felt like you could have done that without leaving. The one thing about that is, we tried to have inroads in the local industry. And at that point, there was real no hip hop industry. Um, but even just like any other music besides traditional, um, locally, just didn't 
I mean, we met with some folks um, that were at like the one label that was putting out records locally. They kind of didn't get what we were trying to do. Same experience with a number of other folks that were trying to do even like R&B or any other styles. It was kind of like, well, it's not local. It's not going to sell. You know, you're, you're, you're abandoning your roots. So that's kind of from the older, you know, kind of set in, in, in their ways uh, generation that were running the show back then. Um, we didn't have the best like studio infrastructure. I know the places we did our recordings, we were never really super satisfied with. So it was almost impossible back then to do anything really uh, with the music we were making. There was like a radio show where I mentioned my brother and my cousin had got on and stuff, but it was like a once in a week thing. And it was at the whim of that DJ because he was kind of the only one, you know, the gatekeeper controlling stuff. And so we really didn't have a way to, to, to do anything locally, which is good that now it's different. There's folks that are trying to do it. But in a lot of places, I think the biggest challenge in a place like Zimbabwe and like a developing country is there's economic hardship from, you know, that's way beyond what a lot of us are used to. And so thinking about making music commercially and making money is a pretty tall ordeal, pretty tall endeavor to try to do because, you know, people are worried about, you know, food and rent, you know, and you're trying to hustle some music and make some money. And so people do it, um, you know, in, in different ways. I think the South African music scene, they've been able to commercialize it a lot more because there is a lot more disposable income, huge disparity in wealth, but there are people that do have spend and there are companies and commercial entities that have been able to exploit it i kind of wanted to explore that a little bit because on your latest track you rhyme looking for someone of something we can believe in what we need is justice and someone held accountable gonna make it even though the odds are insurmountable and if i focus on zimbabwe we have emerson mangangwa who is nicknamed the crocodile whose opposition leader mysteriously died in a u.s helicopter before him we had a 37 year rule of Robert Mugabe, who turned the country into an economic disaster zone. Elections in Zimbabwe have always been marred by political violence and disputes. And please don't get me started on Donald Trump in the United States. But man, like, Dumi, you must be tired, man, because you've been screaming <laughs> for change for decades. And it's sometimes it must be hard to see the light. Yeah, no. And it's, it's, it's funny that you, you draw that parallel because I always say it. I'm like, hey, you know, we want free and fair elections. We don't want tampering in elections. You know, we don't want irregularities. We don't want conflicts of interest. We don't want a president that's enriching themselves using their office. And it's like, wait, are you talking about America? Are you talking about Zimbabwe? You know, um, you know, previously people would laugh and be like, oh, those African countries are, you know, their politicians are corrupt and there's all this corruption, right? But like, hey, look in the mirror, look at what's happening right, right here at home. But yeah, it's tough. Like, um, I remember talking to one of my uncles in Zimbabwe and I was like, hey, you know, I'm wishing you well. And I, I wish, you know, hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And he's like, well, there would be, but we don't have electricity. Like, you know, there's power outages during the day. There's just so many challenges that people are facing with, you know, trying to come up and just trying to survive. Um, prices skyrocketing. Um, so you can imagine now there's a crisis with oil here. Before all of this popped off, there was petrol shortages and people were lining up to get gas. 
or petrol, as they call it there, at gas stations, you know, for hours and hours and, you know, stations running out and, you know, foreign currency exchange problems. So it's been a long time, you know, and things haven't really gotten better. You know, there have been spots of brightness and then there have been real spots of real darkness um, and a lot of challenges with with politics, um, with infrastructure, with development, um, a lot of frustration for artists because you can imagine, again, you know, the government is not funding arts programs if people don't have electricity, right? There's bigger fish to fry and the, a lot of those critical needs are not being met. Um, so it's tough. It's tough, man. But I, I feel like if I use my voice, if I use my platform to express what's going on, you know, and show solidarity with the people that are going through troubles, you know, domestically as well as um, back in Zimbabwe, you know, maybe maybe it makes a difference or maybe it gives people hope or inspiration and maybe we're able to find ways to to make changes. It sucks because especially if you want to get like if you want to get on a concert series and they say you got to bring your own equipment and they don't pay you. So the organizers don't even value your time, your talent. And as a whole, it diminishes who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes, you know what I mean? It's, it's good to be, you know, hustle and, you know, get your gear. Sometimes it's nice to just be an artist, man. You know what I mean? And, you know, be creative, you know, not be encumbered by, you know, the technical limitations and the equipment and the, the fights with the promoters and just perform and bring something beautiful to people, you know what I mean? And share your spirit and your words and, and, and progress and development and, and to have to have all that other stuff holding you back from doing, you know, what you know needs to be done. It's a shame. America's weird, man. I mean, one day you're playing at the Kennedy Center and the next day you're trying to buy a car and the salesperson doesn't give you the time of day. <laughs> I'm telling you, right? Like, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's no regard, you know, <laughs> no regard. Man, you've come a long way from uh, beginning work as a systems analyst, man. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Now, nah, definitely. So we got the new single with uh, Chub Rock. We got the remix by Mr. Liff. I'm going to give you the floor, man, to let the people know uh, what's ahead for you in 2020. Yeah, so um, really I'm excited about this single, uh, We Don't Need. Uh, like we said, it's timely. And I love, I've always loved Chub Rock. And he totally, you know, I'm, you got to listen to the track, but he totally puts the current administration on blast for, what, for what's really going on. But the a dope beat by my man, uh, First Spawn, real head nodder. And, uh, you know, and a dope hook, uh, my homie Nathaniel Starr, who's just a great vocalist and real cool brother that I've recently started collaborating with. So that singles out on all digital platforms. Uh, people can stream it. They can cop it um, kind of on any of the, the sites where you listen to music. And it's real fun. I'm working on that single. The next other single that just dropped um, on Monday, so a couple of days ago, um, was called Nightfall, the remix uh, featuring Mr. Liff, also another real dope lyricist. And all these songs are basically working up towards the release of a full-length album that I'll have coming out later this year. Real different sounding, too. Like, you know, some have vocalists, some have just hard, stripped-down beats. Some are real thoughtful and introspective. Um, the next song I have coming up, This Is My Calling, kind of just encompasses my journey from beginning to end. And just, you know, continuing to put out music. Um, like I said, I'm taking my music 
to traditional clubs and bars, you know, that scene, as well as non-traditional venues. So you don't expect me to pop up anywhere and everywhere. I actually just got contracted to do a tour series at the local Fairfax County libraries because they saw what we did. And they said, well, there's a lot of our audience that might not necessarily either make it to the Kennedy Center or make it to like the 930 Club or Union Stage, but they'd love to hear and see what you do. So we did a pilot show last year that went really well, really, really well received. We basically, you know, brought hip hop to the library, go figure, right? It's like quiet, please, not, <laughs> not, 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 not for the next hour. So they've got like resource rooms that are off, you know, from the main annex of the library. And we also get all ages in those shows too. Like, I mean, people were bringing their kids, you know, it's grown folks, big, uh, wide variety of people in the audience. And we basically did our thing. You know, I had, you know, the bass player. <clears throat> I had the DJ. I had vocalists. I brought dancers in there. It's kind of like, we do the whole show. We're not going to half step, you know, and just give you all a taste. We're going to give you all the whole thing. Um, or as much as fits into a 100-person resource room at any rate. I'm just, I'm glad to see you busy and active as ever. The world needs more of you, your music, and quite frankly, just the way you think. Because we get ten waka flockas for everyone do me right nowadays. <laughs> uh, I'm just happy we're able to sit down and talk, man. No, I appreciate it, man. This, this has been cool. Like, and I'm I just feel blessed to be able to still do it. And so I know your platform is super important. I'm super appreciative that you let me be on it, and we could chop it up. I'm super impressed that you had all the in-depth info in the background. Like, that's always a pleasure when you're talking to somebody and they're not like, so did you drop your first album last year and stuff? So, you know, um, I respect you. Salute for that, man. I appreciate it. And appreciate being able to tell my story. You know what I mean? I don't take it for granted. Um, And I love that, you know, somebody out there be able to hear it and, you know, take something away from it.